I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. As you know from time to time over the last several years, we had opportunity to take small steps through this chapter. We talked about Abel and Enoch and Noah and uh, Abraham and Moses, and uh, the very last time that we were in this chapter, we were looking at the, the events uh, that happened in uh, verses 17, 18, and 19 with Abraham and Isaac at the offering up uh, of Isaac. And so what I would like to draw your attention to this morning uh, are the next three verses in Hebrews chapter 11, that is Hebrews 11, verses 20, 21, and 22. And I'd like to begin by reading those verses. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus to the, of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, there are two observations that I would like to make about this chapter before we begin to, about these verses before we begin to look at these verses. And that is, uh, the first has to do with God's promises. There is an inherent frailty and fallibility that always resides in the promises made to us by fellow human beings. Even when they come to us from the most intelligent and successful people, even when they come to us from the most sincere and well-intentioned people, it is a sad fact of life that husbands and wives forsake the promises that they make to one another. Parents break the promises that they make to their children. Pastors don't always keep the promises that they make to their congregations. Wherever there are human relationships and human commitments, there will be disappointments and failures. Of course, there is one exception to this otherwise universal principle. Politicians always keep their promises. Do you agree with, with me on that? Uh, oh, oh, that it was so. Certainly there are many, many reasons that this is true. Some broken promises are caused by fragrant sin and selfishness and ill will. Some uh, are broken because of weaknesses and limitations and things that just simply uh, are out of our control. They're beyond our control. But regardless of what the reasons are, the fact remains every promise made from one human being to another, must be understood in the context of frailty and fallibility. But throughout the book of Hebrews, the scriptures have been teaching us that the promises of God are of an entirely different kind. They are different because they originate in the being of God himself. God's promises are bound to his eternal character. They reflect his glorious sovereignty in his world and his unstoppable plan for our lives and for this world. There is nothing to overpower him or to frustrate him 
or to hinder him from doing whatever he is purposed to do or from fulfilling uh, whatever promises and commitments that he has made. There is absolutely nothing related to frailty and fallibility that attaches itself to God and to his promises. In fact, his promises are rooted in an integrity that is uncompromised and a faithfulness that is immutable and a strength that has no bounds and that nothing can withstand. And we can see this as we look uh, at Isaac and Jacob and Joseph in our text. One other observation I want to make before we look at these verses is to draw your attention to the fact that these verses concern the last days of these three men. If you were writing this chapter about the heroes of faith from ages past, what would you say about Isaac or Jacob or Joseph? What event from their lives would you select as an example of their faith? Would it be these three uh, examples that we have in verses 20, 21, and 22? I doubt very much that this is what we would highlight about these three men. Throughout this chapter, our writer has focused on the most prominent aspects of the faith of men like Abel and Enoch and, and Noah and Abraham. And so it is a bit surprising uh, to see this particular focus when he comes and draws our attention to these three men. We talked just a few weeks ago about Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah and the submission of this strong young man Isaac to his weak and elderly father. You may recall how Jacob wrestled all night with the angel of the Lord. And the life of Joseph is filled with godly character and faithfulness. Thirteen years in prison, faithful. Resisting the advances of Potiphar's wife, but faithful. Forgiveness toward his cruel, cruel brothers, faithful. And yet our writer chooses none of these things, but goes to their very last days and their very last words and their very last actions to point out the grace of faith that was evident in their lives. Each of these three men, Abraham's son and his grandson and his great-grandson, come to their last days in very different ways, and yet, in the end, they are all three in the very same place, approaching their death, believing in the promise of God. May I suggest this to you? Facing our death presents our faith with its strongest challenge. Trials test our faith, and trials prove our faith. And what we are thinking about, and what we are doing, and what we are saying in our last years and last days will give a strong testimony to the integrity of our profession of faith or not. Let us consider these three statements in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 20 through 22. First of all, verse 20 and Isaac. Verse 20 says, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Now, the statement in verse 20 seems very simple and straightforward. Jacob, uh, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. But nothing could be further from the truth. The account of this uh, is found in Genesis chapter 27. John Owen makes this observation about this account. He says, 
the story which he reports, that is, the writer of Hebrews reports in verse 20, is recorded in Genesis 27. And there is none in the scripture filled with more intricacies and difficulties and to, as unto a right judgment of the things related, though the matter of fact be clearly and distinctly set down. So what he's saying is, is that we can read the story and the events that happen are plain enough. We can understand that. But what in the world, these people, these four people in Genesis 27, what they're thinking about, how they're deciding to do what they're, they're doing, how they can justify it in their minds. He says it, it's one of the real mysteries and difficulties in all of the scriptures. Then continuing the quote, he says, the whole represents unto us divine sovereignty, wisdom and faithfulness, working effectually through the frailties, infirmities, and sins of all the persons concerned in this matter. You know the story. Isaac is an old man. He's almost blind. He's really not able to see any longer. Isaac is aware that his days on earth are coming to an end. In keeping with the custom of his day, Isaac intends to call his oldest son so that he may bless him. Now, we need to be clear about this one thing. There is more to this blessing than the normal passing of family headship to the oldest son of the next generation. It is more than just well wishes for the next generation that any family might experience uh, in those days. This family is like no other family. We see in Abraham's family the pronouncement of blessing that has an inspired and prophetic quality with implications that reach far beyond this family. Indeed, these blessings affect all the nations of the earth. And if you are a Christian, these blessings reach all the way to you and affect you personally. We see this happen as Isaac blesses Jacob. We also are going to see it as Jacob blesses the sons of Joseph. When these patriarchs speak over their sons, they are proclaiming by divine inspiration God's appointed destiny for each one of them. And these pronouncements will come to pass in every single detail. Our text says Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau regarding things to come. Remember the circumstances of these two boys. In Genesis 25, in verses 21 through 23, we read these words. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. And then note this in particular, the older shall serve the younger. From the very beginning, God makes his will known. Jacob will be the blessed one. It is the younger who will inherit the covenant blessings. The covenant with Abraham that was renewed with Isaac will pass to Jacob. It will not be said that Yahweh, 
is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Yahweh, by his own purposes, will be the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And please pay special note to this. God in his sovereign dealings with men from the beginning of time has acted, has acted according to his divine choice in contradiction to the, to the expectations and the ways of men. The norm was for the firstborn son to be the blessed one. For the firstborn son to receive the double portion of inheritance. For the firstborn son to receive authority in the family or in the tribe. But we see God over and over again overthrowing human convention and expectations. It is the younger son, Abel, that God prefers over the older Cain. It is Noah's younger son, Shem, that is given preference over the older son, Japheth. Isaac is given the covenant promise instead of Ishmael. Jacob is blessed rather than Esau. Joseph becomes the covenant head and not the firstborn Reuben. And even in the case of Joseph, as his, as his two sons are blessed, it is Ephraim the younger and not Manasseh that is put first. And just as a side note, when Israel is getting ready to enter the promised land, who is it that leads them into Israel, into, the, into Canaan? It is Joshua, the son of Nun, of the tribe of Ephraim. And when the kingdom is divided years later, the, the southern part is called Judah, the northern part is called Israel, but, but oftentimes the northern tribes are referred to by the name of one tribe, and the, 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 the name, the title that is given to the northern tribes that we see many, many times, especially in the book of, uh, of the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, and Ezekiel is the name Ephraim. It, it, they're called Ephraim, Ephraim, the northern tribes of Israel. And so they will be blessed, and it is the younger that will be the one that dominates uh, in the future life of those families. So we can only conclude that the covenant promises of God are not subject to human patterns and traditions and expectations that God's, God's ways really are not our ways. God's savings, saving blessings are dispensed according to His good pleasure, not according to what seems best to us. And this is the, re the reality that as Christians we need to come to terms with once and for all if we are going to understand our God and how He operates in this world. The Apostle Paul, thinking about these two, son these two boys, uh, says this in Romans chapter 9. If you want to look there, these words are found in verses 10 and following. Paul says, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, they were, though, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let me ask you a question. We know a little bit about Jacob, and we know a little bit about Esau. If one of them was going to be chosen on the basis of works, 
which one would it have been? Would it have been the ungodly Esau? Would it have been the conniving, deceptive, lying Jacob? I would suggest to you that there's nothing about the works of these men that would commend them to God. And what we see, as Paul says here, is God making his sovereign choice. His purpose of election is what will continue. But Paul anticipates the questions that we may have. He says in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God says that compassion and mercy belong to him. They are his to give. Do you struggle with the idea of God's electing grace? May I suggest that it will help you to consider Abel and Shem, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Ephraim. Now, this is the very thing that Isaac is struggling with. Back in Genesis 25 and 28, we read that Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, this is the more important thing. Isaac loved Esau, but God loved Jacob. God was clear with Isaac and Rebekah. But we see Isaac trying to take things into his own hands. He is going to bless Esau. But God has said that the older shall, shall serve the younger. Jacob is to receive the covenant promise. The most important thing of all, and the most important thing of all, Jesus Christ, the real son of the covenant, will come through him that is, he'll come through Jacob and not through Esau. Isaac's experience at, at Mount Moriah was high drama. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It is one of the most dramatic moments in the scriptures next to the crucifixion of our Lord. But let me suggest to you that Genesis 27 is high drama of another sort. Family intrigue, favoritism, jealousy, deception outright disregard for the clear word of God. It is hard to imagine a worse situation. And here is Isaac about to bestow God's covenant blessing on the son that he knew was not God's choice. What he failed to take into account is that the sovereign purpose of God is invincible. Foolish Isaac had come to think that the blessing was in his hand that he could determine the object of the blessing of God. What Isaac is about to learn is that God's purpose always stands and there are no exceptions. You know what happens? While Esau goes out to hunt and prepare food in anticipation of receiving the blessing, Rebekah and Jacob go to work. And in, all, in, in an almost unbelievable act of trickery, and conniving, and deception, and lying, they take, they take advantage of Isaac, who cannot trust his physical sight, or his physical hearing, or his physical sense of touch. And with the deception complete, Isaac unknowingly blesses Jacob. 
Now, don't be mistaken to think that all of this is okay because the ends justify the means. There is nothing, this is nothing but evil through and through, and it will ruin this family for decades to come. God did not need the help of Rebekah or Jacob to bring his will to pass. He could have brought the blessing to Jacob in a thousand different ways. But also don't miss this. That while Isaac and Rebekah and Esau and Jacob descend to their very worst, the promise of God stands. His will is accomplished. And whether everybody in, in, involved does what is right or whether everybody involved does what is wrong, the purpose of God stands and His promises are certain. May I suggest that this over-the-top corruption, this vile behavior that we see in this chapter that plays out in sober providential history in Genesis 27 should be a picture to us of just how ugly and wicked it really is any time and every time we don't obey the Word of God and believe His promises. Now, our text says, by faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Do you see any faith on the part of Isaac in what we've just talked about? Let's look at Genesis 27 and see if we can see evidence of his faith there. Esau immediately returns. You'll see the words in verse 30 that say Jacob had scarcely gone out. So no sooner than Jacob has left the scene, Esau arrives. Note verse 32, where we read these words. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? Remember, he, he can hardly see and hear. And, and so he, he's, he's not sure who's approaching him. And he answered, I am your son, your firstborn son Esau. Now at this moment, how will Isaac react? In a flash, he knows that his plans have been messed up, that what he intended to do didn't happen. Now, observe three things that indicate to us the faith of Isaac in this passage. Note, first of all, the words at the beginning of verse 33. Then Isaac trembled very violently. Literally, in the Hebrew, uh, this term is he was terrified with a great terror, or it could be translated, he trembled with a trembling fear, or he trembled with a trembling dread. Now, why does he do this? Does he do it in rage because his plans were messed up? I would suggest no. Does he do it because he's afraid of what Esau would do? I don't think so. I think the answer to that would be no. I suggest that Isaac trembled violently because in that moment he knew that God had providentially intervened to overthrow his attempt to disobey and contradict the promise. Isaac trembled because he understood that God's word is not to be trifled with. Isaac trembled because he understood that God is to be feared. Isaac trembled because he knows that the promise of God is true. He believes it, and he knows the jeopardy that his unbelief has placed him in. 
This comes crashing down on him like a ton of bricks, I would suggest. Isaac has had a cold, hard slap in his spiritual face, and God has his full attention. Psalm 18 says this, With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. We see a trembling faith in the reaction that Isaac has. Secondly, we see his faith at the end of verse 33. Note the words at the end of the verse. I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. Isaac doesn't say to Esau, oh, I'm sorry. Let me see if we can remedy this, this situation. You know that Isaac could have remedied the situation. No one would have expected that he honor words that he spoke in complete deception and misunderstanding and fraud. He could have made this situation right in reference to Esau. But that's not what we see Isaac do. He does exactly the opposite. Rather, Isaac affirms that what he has done is right. I have blessed him, yes, and he shall be blessed. Isaac knows that God has shown, shown himself shrewd in the face of his manipulation. God has brought about the fulfillment of his promise, and it will stand. Jacob will be the blessed one. This is what Isaac believes, and this is what Isaac affirms. Isaac trembled at the manifestation of God's sovereign providence that invaded his life and manipulated his disobedience to fulfill his own promises. Isaac has this truth reestablished in his mind forever. God's promises are indestructible. Listen to what one pastor said commenting on this passage. He said this, We read that story, and we're taken back by the shrewdness on the part of Rebekah and Jacob in deceiving Esau and Isaac. But I want to tell you something. You read that story carefully, and you will discover that it is the shrewdness of God that takes our breath away. And I would suggest that is exactly what we see in Genesis chapter 27. Now notice a third evidence of his faith. And it's found in the opening words of chapter 28. Isaac calls Jacob and blesses him a second time. This time he knowingly and in faith does what he should have done the first time. Genesis 28, verses 1 through 4. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padam Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples, that he may give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. And thus he affirms the covenant blessing of Abraham 
to Jacob. Isn't it a great comfort to your soul to know that all of your sin and deception and manipulation cannot frustrate God from keeping the promises that He has in store for you in Christ? It is a wonderful truth that we see here played out in the life of Isaac. But be warned. If you are a true believer in Christ, God will not leave you in sin and unbelief. He will bring you back to your spiritual senses. Dear ones, if need be, God will bring an Isaac moment. A moment of trembling and with trembling fear. God certainly can get our attention to put our minds back where they need to be. Can He not? Our verse says, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Now, let's turn just very briefly to uh, look, consider Jacob and Joseph, and we'll just look at them very quickly. Verse 21, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of the staff. What is there to commend Jacob to us as a faithful man? We've just seen him in, in Genesis 27, liar and deceiver. And that was not new for Jacob. It was the pattern of his life to be a manipulator and a trickster. You may remember back in Genesis 25, Jacob gets Esau to sell him his birthright, taking advantage of him. In later years, Jacob is going to repeat the failures of his father. Parental fa favoritism wreaked havoc in Isaac's family. Does Jacob learn any better? No, he treats Joseph with so much special attention that his brothers literally get rid of him, Joseph coming within a hair of being murdered. There's something very different about the like of, of Jacob as compared to Isaac. Isaac, from his youth, was a person who exhibited faith. In the case of Isaac, it appears that in his later years, his faith becomes weak and inconsistent and faltering. But as we just saw, God dramatically renews his faith in his old age. But with Jacob, from his youth, we see questionable character. He doesn't appear to be wise and spiritual as his family grows and grows. Jacob's conduct will bring him much misery throughout his life. But God is gracious to Jacob, and in his very last years, the years there in Egypt, for the first time in his life, Jacob is enjoying a time of prosperity and peacefulness and quiet. And in Genesis chapter 48, Jacob does something extraordinary. Joseph, knowing that Jacob is near death, brings his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to him. Jacob does an amazing thing. He tells Joseph that he is going to adopt these two grandsons as his own sons, and he is going to bless them. And that is what Hebrews eleven twenty one is referring to. Now, how do we see Jacob's faith in this? Well, let me mention this in several ways. I want to begin, first of all, by reading a quotation from Spurgeon. I read this in our Sunday school class. For those of you who have heard this before, please bear with me. But I think Spurgeon says this very well. He says, only by faith could the old man really give a blessing to anyone. Look at him. He's too feeble to leave his bed. When he sits up supported on, on pillows at what is called the bedhead, he calls for his trusty staff that he may lean upon it while he raises himself up just a little to be in a position to stretch out his hands and to use his voice. He has no strength and his eyes are dim so that he cannot see which is Ephraim and which is Manasseh. He is failing in most of his faculties. 
every, every way you can see that he is a worn out old man and can do nothing for the children whom he loves. If he is able to bestow a blessing, it cannot be by the power of nature. And yet he can and does bless them. And therefore, we feel sure that there must be an inner man within that feeble old Jacob. There must be a spiritual Israel hidden away in him. An Israel who, by prevailing with God as a prince, has obtained a blessing and is able to dispense it to others. And so there is. And at half a glance, we see it. He rises to the dignity of a king, a prophet, and a priest when he begins to pronounce a blessing upon his two grandchildren. He believes God. He believes that God spoke by him, and he believes that God will justify every word that he is uttering. He believes in the God that hears prayer. His benediction was a prayer, and as he pronounced blessing upon his grandsons, he felt that every word he was speaking was a petition which the Lord was answering. They were blessed, and they should be blessed, and he discerned it by faith. And thus we see he was manifesting his faith in offering believing prayer and in uttering a confident benediction. Let me make a second observation. The blessing itself for these boys was a matter of faith because of what he is giving them. They are to share in the, in the inheritance of the land with the brothers of Joseph. Through these two boys, Joseph will receive a double portion. But as these words are being spoken, what land does Jacob actually possess? Not any of the promised land was his except for one small burial plot where Sarah was buried. The land was only his to give by faith in God's promise. And that is what he does. But third... He is blessing these boys with hope and destiny and the destiny of Israel, which ultimately is Yahweh and his blessing in Christ. N note something about these two boys. These two boys are different from everyone else in Israel. Israel is backwards, poor, farmers, sheep herders. But these two boys, these two young men are of the royal court. They are educated nobles. They are trained in the fine arts and polite society. Sons of the prime minister, exalted in rank and privilege. The whole world is open before these two young men. But Jacob is looking past worldly advantage and circumstance to the true riches of God's people. He is thinking about spiritual things as he blesses them. In Genesis 48 verses 15 and 16 we read these words. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on. In the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day is Yahweh. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil is Christ. And this is his hope. And in this hope of salvation and redemption, with these things on his mind, he blesses these boys. And this is how we must bless our children 
and grandchildren. It is great to lavish our grandchildren with material things, to give them presents and to buy them things. It is a real joy, and we spend a lot of time doing that, don't we? But may God bless us to be thinking about these spiritual things in our last days and to bless our children and our grandchildren by our words of faith. Now, let's just read the verse, verse 22, and then we'll kind of, uh, we'll kind of cut to the end because I know our time is running long. Genesis chapter, excuse me, Hebrews eleven twenty-two. as we read about Joseph, says this. But by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Here we have an entirely different life. As far as we know, Joseph was a person of faith throughout his whole life. His faith did not weaken in his later years like Isaac. He does not have a rocky start like Jacob. Joseph, believing that God will keep his promise, anticipates the exodus and gives his people instructions to bury him there when the land is possessed. In Exodus 13, 9, we read these words, Moses took the bones of Joseph with, the, with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And then in Joshua 24, 32, we read, As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from the land of Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. Joseph has, has complete faith in God's promise as he speaks his last words. Now let me make just a couple of brief observations. God will sanctify his covenant people. God does not leave Isaac in a state of declining faith. He deals with him in such a way that in his last days, his faith is evident and is commended. God does not leave Jacob mired in the sins of his, of his youth. He deals with him in such a way that in his last days, his faith is evident and is commended. God blesses Joseph all of his life with a faith that withstands severe hardship. He deals with him in such a way that in his last days, his faith is evident and is commended. Aren't you glad that Isaac and Jacob are in Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith? It would be nice if every one of us was like Joseph our whole life. It may be that some of you in this room, or like Joseph. I hope by God's grace that is true. But I know that this room is full of Isaacs and Jacobs. Many of us know what it is to start well, but to fall. Many of us didn't start well at all, and we have a lot of baggage and regrets and consequences that, fall, that will follow us uh, throughout the, all the days of our life. But be encouraged, each of these men, though they were very different in their life, ended well because God blessed them and cared for them and saved them. Now I want to talk, excuse me, I want to draw your attention to one final verse, and it's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. You may ask, how do I know my faith will endure when my last weeks and days 
and hour come? It is a fair question. It is the great challenge to our faith. To, uh, face. I want us to look at this verse that I often think of. I think of this verse more often than any other when I am confronted with the reality of death. Paul is talking about dying in this chapter. He is talking about leaving our earthly body, our earthly tent, our earthly home, and entering a heavenly one. That's what he's talking about in verses 1 and 4. And then he makes this extraordinary statement in verse 5. This is what he says. He says, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Dear ones, Christians are able to have a testimony of faith in their last days. And here is the reason why. Because God has prepared us for this very thing. God prepared Isaac, that inconsistent man. God prepared Jacob, that rascal. God prepared Joseph. And God is preparing each one of us for this very thing. I don't have to prepare myself. I'm not able to prepare myself for that very thing. He is preparing me. And He is preparing you for this very thing. This is not true for you if, if you are not a Christian. You're not ready for death. And you never will be unless you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But for Christians, for us Christians, what can we do as we grow old and our physical strength is failing and we're just not able to do many of the things that we wish we could do? Well, we are always able to speak to those around us about our faith in the promises of God. We can have, like these men of Hebrews chapter 11, verses 20, 21, and 22, a perspective that looks forward and not back, that is looking forward to the promises that God has made and that He will surely bring to pass. May God help us, like Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, to end well with words of faith on our lips. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for the lives of these three men and that, Lord, we're able to see that you take all kinds of people with all kinds of problems and you bring them to their last days full of faith and confidence in your promises. I pray, Lord, that that would be the case for us, that you would be pleased to bless us in this way and that as we face our death and as we are, are engaged with others that are suffering and approaching the end of their lives, that you would help us to be encouraging in these very things. And Lord, we are so glad. Uh, we, we, Lord, can't even comprehend how important it is, it is for us that you yourself are preparing us for these very things. And we bless you for it in Christ's name. Amen.